0: Solomon the son of David dies, the kingdom divides, Israel to the north, and Judah to the south. And in the 8th century, Assyria was the dominant power in the ancient Near East, threatening, flexing its muscles, seeking to dominate, and in 734 B.C., fearing the kingdom of Assyria, Israel in the north forms an alliance with Syria to resist Assyria, and Israel pressures Judah in the south to join forces. Isaiah the prophet served God's people in Judah. And he speaks the truth in love to King Ahaz, king of Judah, and calls him to trust in the Lord. But the king refuses, and he trusts in man instead. And the result of turning from God and trusting in man is that God brings judgment. The Assyrians invade Israel in the north and they move further and they invade Judah in the south. And so the land of Israel is conquered and the people are deported. But a fateful remnant will return. And there's this line of demarcation that is running through the visible church in that day. The unfaithful curse God, but the faithful, led by Isaiah the prophet and his disciples, trust God, hold fast to God. And into this historical moment, God speaks His truth in love through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of His burden and the staff of His shoulder, the rod of His oppressor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's Word. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are the true and living vine. And we are dependent branches grafted into you by grace through faith. And apart from you, we can do nothing. We cannot preach. We cannot listen. We cannot respond believingly. We cannot live obediently. We ask that you would help us. Not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. Would you help us? Would you give life to our reading and our preaching and our listening to this good news revealed through Isaiah the prophet, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to consider the text this evening in three parts. First of all, how do we look at Christmas In verse 1, Isaiah gives us a perspective on our Christian hope. Secondly, what do we get for Christmas? Verses 2 and 3, Isaiah gives us a description of our Christmas hope. And finally, why are we so sure of Christmas? Verses 4 through 7 Isaiah gives us an explanation of our Christian hope. Let's begin with the first question. How do we look at Christmas? I want you to notice the perspective that Isaiah gives us on our Christmas hope in verse 1. Now, beginning in chapter 7 and running through the end of chapter 8, verse 22... Ahaz has rejected the Lord and plunged the nation into darkness. And chapter 8 concludes with these words, They will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. But chapter 9, verse 1 begins with a very sharp contrast. Suddenly, but there will be no gloom, for her who was in anguish. Now, how can this be? From this point forward, Isaiah is looking into the future and he sees God's coming judgment. It's imminent through the Assyrian evasion. But from this point forward, Isaiah writes of the coming devastation as if that devastation was now all in the past. You'll notice the past tenses running throughout the text. That is to say, by faith, Isaiah sees more than the coming disgrace. He also sees a coming reversal from disgrace to glory. By faith, he sees God's mighty acts of salvation as if that salvation was already accomplished. To the eyes of faith, He will do it is as certain and as sure as He has done it. Notice how Isaiah begins to speak in the past tense. In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What did Isaiah see? He sees that the northern parts of Israel would be those regions first to suffer God's judgment. But he also sees that those northern parts of Israel would be those regions first to hear the gospel of the kingdom. Which is why Matthew in his gospel locates this text. Isaiah saw Jesus. Standing on tiptoe as it were, looking down the corridors of time, he sees the Messiah moving from Nazareth to Capernaum by the sea. And Matthew tells us that Jesus there began to preach. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now I want to ask you a question. Maybe you're like me. Any Michigan fans here? Okay. You're watching the game yesterday. You're doing pretty well in the first quarter. But the first quarter turns into the second quarter. And you go down by a few points, right? And you begin to get a little anxious. You ever get anxious just watching the game unfold from the start? Back in North Carolina, watching my Tar Heels, this happened all the time. I'm watching the game unfold from the start. Wouldn't it be nice... If you could watch the game unfold from the end, what if you knew the end from the beginning? It would dramatically change the way you watched that second quarter, wouldn't it? If you saw Michigan defeating Ohio State. At the end, it would totally change the way you watch the second quarter, the third quarter, and the fourth quarter. You would watch it not with fear, not with anxiety, but with poise and calm. There's a certainty. And here in this passage, Isaiah is showing us how to look at Christmas. Think of the advent of the Messiah as a single event that comes in two stages. The Messiah has already come in great measure, but the Messiah has not yet come in His full and final measure. You see, in one sense, we're in a different place than Isaiah the prophet because we are down the road in redemptive history looking back on the first advent of the Messiah. But in a very important sense, we're in exactly the same shoes as Isaiah because our full and final salvation is not yet. It's in the future. And yet the first advent is connected to the second advent The first coming of Jesus means the second coming of Jesus is absolutely certain. It's as good as done. Isaiah is teaching us how to look at Christmas. He's giving us a perspective on our Christmas hope. But secondly, We pose the question, what do we get for Christmas? Isaiah gives us two descriptions of our Christmas hope in verses 2 and 3. The first description, light that dispels darkness, that's the gift we receive at Christmas. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. God's faithful people are caught up in a national calamity. They're walking in darkness, they're enduring the hiding of God's face, disfavor. And then suddenly, God makes his face shine on his people, favor. Suddenly, God's people see this great light. Years ago, remember this story. I think it was nine alive miners down in the depths of the earth. Darkness. No hope. But then a light shines into the darkness. And it changes everything. It's the hope revealed. At creation, the light shone in the darkness. And here, the light shining in the darkness is pointing us to God's work of bringing about a new creation. Isaiah is showing us what we get for Christmas. This inbreaking of light has already come in great measure. The Apostle John tells us of the Incarnation The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Kids, is this not the coolest thing? Isn't it interesting how darkness can never overtake light but whenever you shine the light into the dark, the light always wins? And not only in the incarnation but when you became a Christian, the Apostle Paul describes his and your conversion experience. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Already, in great measure. And notice, this is all by grace. If you're here exploring Christianity, we love an honest explorer. Come and see. Ask your questions. And one of the most important lessons you can learn is that Christianity is not something that you take up or that I take up. Christianity is something that takes you up. Grace finds you and sets you free and takes you up and transforms you into the person you were created to be by the Spirit. God takes you up. Into his purpose. Already. But this inbreaking of light has not yet come in its full and final measure. You look around you. You woke up this morning and you see so much darkness in the world. But Isaiah's description still stands as it points to more light to come. Revelation 22, verse 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. That's what we still have to look forward to. That's what we get for Christmas. Light that dispels darkness, first of all. But secondly, joy that dispels sorrow. And of course, this is, makes perfect sense. When the light dawns in your heart, then joy springs from your heart. The text reads, you have multiplied the nation. Again, notice, it's in the past tense, and yet it has not happened yet. It's the prophetic vision. Isaiah sees, he's teaching us to see the present in light of the future. It's certain. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. From God's side of the relationship, it's another work of grace. He multiplies the tiny remnant into a multitude of people. His grace is committed to bringing many sons and daughters to glory into His very presence. And from our side of the relationship, accepted and found pleasing in His sight through Jesus, we burst into joy, basking in the presence of the Lord. They rejoiced before Him. Two images set forth in the text... Notice, it's not the farmer's fear of famine, but it's like the farmer's joy at harvest because God brought the produce. He did it. And it's not like the soldier's fear of defeat, but it's like the soldier's joy after battle because God has given the victory. Notice how Isaiah shows us what we're getting for Christmas. This outbreaking of joy has already come to you in great measure. The Apostle Peter describes the experience of those who have not seen Jesus but love Him. He writes... Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is what you're getting for Christmas. Indeed, have already gotten. But this outbreaking of joy has not yet come in its full and final measure. As you look around you, As you walk through this world, there's so much sorrow. There's so much loss. But Isaiah's description still stands because it's pointing us to still more joy to come. Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The prophet Isaiah puts it beautifully in chapter 35. The ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. That's what we're getting for Christmas. Still more. Thirdly, and we'll linger here for a bit why are we so sure of Christmas? Isaiah gives us three explanations of our Christian hope, our Christmas hope. Notice how verses 6 and 7 are punctuated by four. Because Isaiah is giving us grounds on which to stand. He's giving us explanations for our Christmas hope. First explanation. Verse 4. Freedom will come. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He's referencing two historical moments. The yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor are all pointing to the bondage that God's people suffered under Pharaoh in Egypt. But the prophet sees that God will bring about a new exodus and God will shatter His foe and set His people free. The second reference, as in the day of Midian's defeat, points to the suffering under the Midianites. Judges chapters 6, 7, and 8. You recall the story. Israel disobeys God and God gives over His people to the Midianites and the Midianites ravish the land and impoverish Israel. But God raises up Gideon and God whittles Israel's army from 22,000 soldiers to only 300. And Gideon and his men defeat the Midianites. And Isaiah is teaching God's people that by a new Gideon God is going to shatter the enemy and set his people free. He's showing you your sure hope in Christmas. It's a freedom that has already come in great measure. On Friday Jesus came under the dominion of sin and death. But on Sunday, Jesus came out from underneath the dominion of sin and death because God raised His Son from the dead. But not as a private person, but as the man for others. As your representative. As goes the shepherd, so go the sheep. This is already your freedom in Christ. Sin shall not have dominion over you. United to the risen Lord Jesus, we are already set free from sin's power. But this freedom has not yet come in its full and final measure. As you look around, there remain so much sufferings. And Isaiah's explanation still stands as it points to still more freedom to come. The freedom from sin's presence and pollution that takes all of our sufferings away it's coming there's a second explanation did you notice the second ground verse 5 freedom will come verse 4 because verse 5 warfare will cease For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It's the image of plundering the enemy after the battle is over. God has fought the battle. And He's won. And God's people enter onto the battlefield to enjoy the fruits of God's victory. The war is over. The enemy's garb Is plundered and thrown into the bonfire. The alien power that once enslaved is now broken, and God has done it all, and we have contributed nothing. He's showing us our sure hope in Christmas. This cessation of war has already come in great measure. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle John tells us in his first letter, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And the Apostle Paul teaches us that God on Friday disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. The cessation of war has already come in great measure. And yet the cessation of war has not yet come in its full and final measure. Because as you look around, you see so much warfare against God and against His people. And even within the church, hostility, But Isaiah's explanation still stands as it points to the end of all warfare that's coming. The psalmist could see it. He writes in Psalm 46, God makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And the Apostle John sees it. Revelation 20, the devil, the instigator behind all of the hostility, behind all of the war, the war maker who had deceived was thrown into the lake of fire. It's coming, even though it's not yet. But finally, there's a third explanation. Freedom will come, verse 4, and warfare will cease, verse 5, because a new king will rule, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That a child is born points to his humanity. That a son is given points us to his royalty. The government shall be upon his shoulder. It's the symbol of a king bearing authority. And so our shoulders are released from the weight of sin and suffering when His shoulders assume the rule. And that this king is called by this fourfold name points to His divinity. In the ancient Near East, it was royal protocol to give kings various names at their birth and at their enthronement And as then, so here, the list of titles. The first pair gives us window into who this king is for us. And the second pair give us window into who this king, what he does for us. Wonderful counselor. It points to his wisdom. Not a therapist, but a military strategist. Literally, he's a wonder of a strategist my old testament professor richard pratt so helpful in helping me understand these titles he used to say imagine this battlefield for the world and you walk into this tent and there it is the battlefield a model of the battlefield and the master strategist is moving pieces here and there planning moving strategizing And you have the opportunity to look on at how the king is going to conquer the world. And then you walk out and your friend asks, what do you think? And you say, he's a wonder of a strategist. He's got the plan to win the world and your friend says, What kind of strategy? And you say, Well, it looks like folly. And that's why it's so wondrous. He's choosing the foolish things a king in a stable, serving and laying down his life unto death, and then rising and now reigning and one day coming, wonderful counselor. he's mighty God. Where his wonderful counselors spoke of his wisdom for us, mighty God speaks of his power for us. He's a warrior who fights with the power of God. You know, these days generals when they go to war they stay back from a distance. But in the ancient Near East, the leader of the armies would go into battle. And that's what our mighty God will do. The great king will actually go to the front lines and fight for his people. He's not just a planner. He's a fighter. He enters into your struggle. He suffers on your behalf. He conquers as your mighty warrior. The second pair point two what He does for us. He's the everlasting Father. In the ancient Near East, Father was often used to refer to the King, even as some today refer to the Queen of England as Mother. So the Messiah will be a royal Father. It speaks to His relationship to His subjects, His care his fatherly concern, his fatherly discipline. And notice how he's not a temporary king. There's no 15 minutes of fame and then he's gone. He's the everlasting king, the final king, never to be dethroned. And finally, he's the prince of peace. Again, remember Isaiah is showing you why your Christmas hope is so sure. What does this king bring? The angels proclaimed it. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. There's peace already that he brings. Giving us peace with God. There's peace progressively as he brings peace between us as his people and into the world as we seek to win the world. And there's peace finally. He's going to bring peace. Peace to the entire world. The increase of His government and His peace, there will be no end. His kingdom will expand progressively. His rule will spread and so will His peace. And the foundation of His throne, the foundation of His kingdom, did you notice? the moral foundation of justice and righteousness. This king will reflect God by always acting according to righteous principles. And this king will always reflect God by acting according to just procedures. He's the king of kings. There's none like him. And the text closes so suddenly. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this." This notion of zeal connotes the idea of jealousy, this component of all true love and especially God's love. It's not a petty, childish, self-centered sentiment. God's jealousy is a component of His love, His passionate concern for His glory. He will not tolerate any rival. His passionate concern for His people. He will not rest until He saves you utterly and overthrows all of your foes. This is His zealous determination for you in Christ Jesus. And it's all backed by His omnipotence. The Lord Almighty will do it. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ revealed through Isaiah the prophet. Let's give thanks and trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that from Genesis through Revelation, You are always revealing who you are, what you say, what you do. And it all fits together. And we thank you for the ministry of Isaiah the prophet through whom you spoke the gospel. All true. All good. And all for us who would believe. We pray that as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, this good news spoken in love by you tonight would catch fire, would take root, would get inside of us and transform us, would overflow within us, would actually change how we relate to you and how we relate to one another, and we pray that it would not stop with us here, but it would move through us to West Michigan and beyond. We appeal to you on the revelation of what you have said. The Lord of hosts will do it, so we're asking you to do it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's conclude our worship standing together. O come, O come, Emmanuel. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.